Welcome again to Pints and Politics. Joining me tonight on this panel discussion are our three members of our politics panel, property manager and businesswoman Jenny Lancio, writer and math teacher Tim Etherington, and freelance writer holds a Master of Arts in Gender Studies and Film, Aggie Linartz. So welcome and thanks for joining me this evening. Now, we're going to be talking about the U.S. election. But before we delve into the minutiae and details of the campaign and media coverage and so on, I'm wondering, are we at a significant historical moment here? In other words, is this a a watershed moment, if you will? There's uh, the pandemic is going on, the wildfires, climate change, racial conflict, economic turmoil. All these things are sort of melding together. Is this threatening to crush liberal democracies, and not just in the U.S., but everywhere? So what about this larger context? Will it crush liberal democracy? You know, I think we, because we know history mostly through recorded history, you know, we think of it, and I don't mean like ancient recorded history. I mean in that most people think about history uh, in the age of photography, then the age of video, and lately in the age of the Internet. And so we, we don't often widen our lens when we consider these questions. You know, what we see as liberal democracy, you know, what do you itemize? You know, the ability to vote, something like free enterprise, something like individual rights, you know, with all sorts of caveats along the way. But all of this has existed for a very, very short period of time. And as a matter of fact, you know, we can go back to, say, the early part of the 20th century. Maybe, the, you know, the, given the, the in Western democracies, women got the franchise to vote. There were movements towards civil rights in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, the rise of labor movement, more of a balance in the economic equation in the early 20th century. This is all brand new. This is just the concept of generations. And do I think it's under threat right now? Absolutely. And it's not because of Trump necessarily. Uh, He happens to be the most dangerous iteration of it. But if you look at Brazil, if you look at India, if you look at Hungary, if you look at uh, Poland, if you look at Turkey, and to to a certain degree, if you look at the United Kingdom right now, Western democracies are slipping into a totalitarian rule in some form of fascism. And, and Trump does represent the most dangerous example of this because for all its failings, they are manifest. The United States has at least served as a bulwark against uh, a complete uh, totalitarian takeover of Western democracies. I think what Tim said, uh, when you look at things in like a wider context and the right to vote, I think that's a key issue in what we're seeing in America right now is that not everybody has the access and the right to vote. And a big part of that is um, mass incarceration in the United States of America and not allowing people who have either had a felony to vote, depending on where they're from. But even if you've been released from prison, you can be shackled with um, issues such as like not paying fines that are related to your jail sentencing, which could be for the most uh, minutia of reasons and directly target, you know, people of color and especially like uh, black Americans. And there's been like a number of studies done on mass incarceration and especially Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow, in which 10 years ago she wrote this book about saying, like, what if mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow? 
And now that's gaining momentum, especially with BLM. It's something she never predicted. Like, uh, luckily, I just picked up a copy with a new forward on it in which she openly says that she never would have expected. She did kind of feel that a watershed moment was coming, but she didn't right. see mass incarceration forefront right. uh, political conversation. And I think yeah. that's so important, especially knowingly in the research that she's done, that in previous administrations, such as the Bush administration, especially in Florida, the black vote would have made a difference. Now coming into Trump's, the election between Trump and Biden, that's a, <laughs> uh, and especially with BLM, the amount, the majority of the population that can't vote, it'd be interesting to see the impact that that would or could have on what's going to happen in November. This is Ted. I'm, I'm confident that the black vote in the U.S. is what's going to make the difference in at the end of this election. I think that that's going to be the difference between Trump getting reelected or not getting reelected. And I think Aggie's right. I mean, that documentary that, you know, she's referring to that talks about the incarceration and all of everything that follows people after they've been incarcerated for a felony. I mean, it could have been from 30 years ago for selling pot. Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I don't understand. I, I guess I a totally different topic, but I'm not quite sure why Biden or any of the Democrats haven't tried to change that along the way. Yeah. Thank you. I actually have a response to that. So a big statement. Sure. Uh, for Michelle Alexander, uh, who wrote the new Jim Crow, was that during Obama's administration, he did give the most clemencies that a president has ever given, which was great because it was recognizing that there was an issue. But under Obama, mass incarceration rose. And that's because Americans are so set. They're so in their mindset of being tough on crime. And that's like, again, that's when we talk about systemic racism. That's an issue of systemic racism, because how do you see ma uh, mass incarceration? How do you see being tough on crime? It's being tough on poor black people. So her book is basically saying, like, it goes so much deeper than even electing a black president. And she talks right. about that in, within that, within her new forward. So when we talk about like a watershed moment and the, you know, the collapse of liberal democracy in the United States and possibly how that might implicate everywhere else in the world, it comes down to their issue of race, which has always mm. existed, which is always and has never been properly addressed like sure the civil rights movement happened sure jim crow ended but it just seemed to have come up in an insidious way in america again because they're not serious about getting rid of it they just renamed it something else and they renamed it being tough on crime which who we in canada and i guess the we i'm thinking of my, my own ethnicity the english irish scots settlers who came over like to think this is an American problem. Race, Canada, well, and, and of course that's false, as as we have seen. I, I'd like to explore this context a bit more. What does what does this election and what's going on in the states right now mean for Canadians? I mean, why should Canadians care? Should they care? What's on the line? In in, in some ways, it it. it you know, in terms of intergovernmental relations and that sort of thing, it actually doesn't make that much of a difference. You know, Canadian governments have worked with American governments and cut good deals and some very bad deals uh, along <laughs> the way. 
and the Trudeau government has shown a, a rather good ability to stare down and play chicken with the Trump administration. Right. So it's not on that level that I think there's any real need for concern. What it is is if the Trump if Trump manages to win this second time, then we are dealing with an imminent fascist state south of us. And I know that sounds alarmist because when you mention fascism, everyone thinks you're talking about Hitler. Hitler was a fascist, but there were more fascists than there than Hitler. We're not right. talking about genocide. We're not talking about, you know, trying to conquer all of Europe with a blitzkrieg, but we are talking about a fusion of capital and military interests and the orientation of a political culture around the whims and proclivities of one man in, in Donald Trump. I mean, the, the GOP doesn't even have a policy platform this year. It's whatever no. Trump wants to do. And right. so because Canada tends to, you know, follow the states in very broad thematic strokes. Right. Uh, and we are seeing it. I mean, today in, in, in Queen's Park, um, Doug Ford uh, accused Andrea Horvath of hiding in her basement for the last five months. And Andrea Horvath was pointing out obvious uh, inconsistencies in their COVID uh, relief approach. Um, so what we start to see is more and more of an acceptance. And, and this has been the greatest intellectual challenge of the Trump era is how, you know, that that old cliche about, you know, frog in a boiling pot of water. We have moved yes, yes. so far in the last four years in terms of permission in the public space for out-and-out -out racism, even though Aggie's absolutely right, structural systemic racism has never gone away. But people are just more comfortable being that way. And the kind of amped-up rhetoric yeah. we see, Aaron O'Toole, take back Canada. Sure. Yeah. So, but that's, that's a concern beyond Canada. That That is where I say that we really, and I know it sounds alarmist, but if Trump does prevail in the next election, then this hundred years experiment in something resembling democracy is over. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I feel like I've spent the last four years waiting for Trump to turn around and say, oh my gosh, you people are such a bunch of idiots. I can't believe you've just blindly followed me. Like it's been some sort of social experiment. And that hasn't happened, which I think is even more frightening because like, I find it shocking that people actually agree with what he says and think that what he does is okay and that they are unable to see the parallels, albeit he's not Hitler, but certainly there are several parallels in the behavior. And why is that not okay with people? Well, I mean, Jen, to your point, and I mean, I, I saw on Twitter today, yet another woman has come forward with an accusation of sexual assault. I mean, but I mean, not to jump deep into the weeds. And of course, this is a huge topic in and of itself. But what is the uh, the women's response to Trump in the states? I mean, how? I mean, I'm tempted to say, how do women vote for Trump? Knowing what do they deny that? Oh, those things didn't happen, or all men are rapists, or I mean, how does that get sorted? I, I think originally there was a certain appeal to that kind of white, you know, blue collar class in the States because, you know, people that that made a career in manufacturing jobs, there was more manufacturing jobs in the States and the economy was decent and people had money in their pocket and, you know, we're a selfish, selfish 
rich mammal. As long as we're looked after and we've got money in our pocket, nobody really is worrying too much about right. what's happening to the person next door or down the road or in another state or that are of a different race than them. And I think that that's maybe what happened at the beginning was that the economy was strong and people had work and jobs were being created and manufacturing jobs were coming back to the U.S. and, you know, all was good. I think that lulled people into a bit of a false sense of security, and then he just took liberty to do whatever he's whatever he wanted he's wanted to and say whatever he's done. Like as far as this woman coming forward, that's not new. That's just next. It's one thing after another after another. Yeah, I mean that's the appalling thing. And yeah, nothing, nothing is nothing. Nothing's going to shake the Trump cult. You know, the the thirty five percent of the American populace are impervious. Uh, yeah. to, to to any of these arguments. So that's not really what the tips are where the election's being fought. However, if you get into the weeds of you know the breakdown of potential votes, it's actually women's votes who may defeat Trump. Um, right. You know, I've heard that. Losing hugely with, with women right across the board. Um, right. Thank God for that. Um, so, you know, it wouldn't be the first time that the that female population has saved the rest of us, I suppose. But now, as for people voting for him, I mean, it's, it's sure. they're, they're died in their way. And I, I, I get I don't want to dominate this. I can get back to it later. But I, I on the weekend, I, I read Michael Cohen's book that just came out. Oh, yeah. What would you think really, of it? It's, it's a really interesting book, you know, because he goes into he basically lays out saying, listen, you're not going to like me. I'm doing terrible things and I'm not trying to make you like me, but I'm just going to tell you exactly what went down and what it was like being Trump's right hand man. By the end of the book, he kind of wants the reader to feel sorry for him a bit when he goes to prison. And you're like, dude, I just read 300 pages of awful things you did. I really don't care. (laughs) (laughs) But but what is really interesting is that's mostly what he gets into. You know, uh, Michael Cologne was a a very wealthy guy before he started getting connected to Trump. You know, a multimillionaire, very wealthy guy. But he got swept up and he's doing a bit of self-analysis in this book. And he's writing in prison saying, why did I throw everything away? Why did my family, like my, his family hated Trump and always wanted him to quit, but he couldn't help himself. There was that sort of allure. From the first day he met Trump, that Trump was lying to him, but it was so seductive and alluring to him. Right? Like any other white collar criminal, you know, it was all good until he got caught. Yeah. Aggie. Uh, I think that allure was like the power of uh, white supremacy. And that has been, if you think about, you know, in the conversations of white privilege and why are people so angry, uh, it's not about that you're losing anything. It's just about sharing a piece of the pie. And I think especially in the context of America, that becomes like a very, like an even more frazzled conversation and a more, a conversation that is fueled by angst, anger, and hatred, and always has been, like speaking of reading things and watching things, I just watched the O.J. Simpson documentary, uh, Made in America. And it's a great documentary because it contextualizes the O.J. trial against what was happening in America at the time, and it sets it up as like a race conflict. And why the O.J. Simpson trial and why that verdict that came out like deemed him innocent essentially and really the thesis of the whole thing is that it was vengeance for what happened with Rodney King and the fact that Rod, like he was never uh, he never right. got the proper justice that he did so 
when they got a jury full of African-Americans, they were like, you know what? F you. We don't care. Yeah. Like, like what the defense is saying, even though, though the guy not might, might not be innocent. And that escalated race tensions. But it's interesting that culturally, like those tensions have always existed. They've always existed. And you can see that so well, like that kind of a place that it was both between justice, but also pop culture, um, sure. sport culture, yeah. culture. Okay, um, now I'm I'm wondering what's the role or, or lack of the role of rational debate, logic, and science in this election? Like who who stands to gain from the daily onslaught of fake news? Is there a danger of too great a focus on the U.S. election here in the Canadian media, and we we lose sight of our own issues? So, so what are the political dangers of fake news and this massive distraction that's going on? Basically, anything that's working on social media in the U.S. in this election, and if they can see through the algorithms and who's interacting with those types of posts, there will be bots or there will be predatory groups who will use those memes and I guess you could say Canadianize them and start to try them out here. And I think that's that's the danger. Yeah. yeah. And I and I don't know if there's a way to protect against that. I kind of feel like we're all watching like a slow motion crash even though it's moving quite quickly and nobody can avert their eyes. And because of that, we're all susceptible <laughs> to the propaganda yeah. that comes from it. Sure. Jen. I'm, I'm not sure that traditional debate is going to play as big of a role in this election as it has in the past. <laughs> First, like Trump's incapable. And as much as I love Joe, like that's not his strong suit either. I think that this election is going to be completely run by social media and pop culture, like things like Nancy Pelosi going to get her hair done. That is the type of thing that is going to decide what if there are people sitting on the fence, you know, people that have been Republicans forever and they're thinking they may come over to the Democratic side, something like that is going to turn them off. And I think right. that undervaluing the whole social media, pop, cult, pop culture, like the weight that that's going to carry in this election. And Trump, I will give him this. He uses it perfectly. Mm -hmm. Like he that is his main tool and he's like playing it perfectly. I, I think more importantly, he uses it instinctively. Yeah. Yes. He's not the master of what he does. The world has just evolved to a point where an animal like him inhabits it freely. Uh, he's always been a person who's always lied. He's always been craven and brash and without shame. I mean, there's some deep, obviously, psychological issues, but he's met this moment very well uh, to succeed at this. And it's quite accidental. He never really thought he was going to become president anyway. But now he's there and he has that power. He's going to do everything. And I don't know if we're going to get in this program about the scenarios that are really frightening about how he's going to hold on to power. Um, well, we live, we live in an age, you know, the one thing everyone underestimated about Trump in 2016 was that he was a TV star for a couple seasons. The Apprentice is one of the highest rated shows on television. So when he was speaking, he wasn't just the Donald Trump that, you know, pointy head intellectuals like ourselves thought of. He was the guy they saw on their TV screen who personified. It was fake, obviously. It was all performance. 
but he personified the successful, you know, power you know, self-made American businessman. And yeah. it's very difficult in, in the same way that think what it's like, you know, you see a person on television, they act a role for like 10 years or whatever. And then you see a different TV show, you have difficulty thinking of them as anything else. I do want to add one quick thing, though, that a couple of you mentioned about debating. I've seen Joe Biden, Joe Biden debate twice. I saw him debate Paul Ryan in the, in the, in the uh, vice presidential debate. And I saw him debate Bernie Sanders. He's actually a very good debater. He won both those debates quite, quite, no, quite clearly. And if one ray of sunshine in this desultory election is that the Trump campaign, because they're terrible at this politics, is completely blowing the expectations game with the debate. And by, the Biden campaign is, is letting them string it out very long. Uh, he actually knows what he's doing because he knows his details. He's not exactly the most exciting speaker, but he actually is a good good in debates. Yeah. Aggie. Yeah, like back to the question about debates. And I think the one big sort of, you know, social media thing that came out like two days ago was Joe Rogan saying, hey, I'll have Trump and Biden on my podcast for four hours and let him slug it out. And I think that that's very interesting in the context of uh, politics turning to this wave of populism and whether mm-hmm. that's a good idea to allow candidates to do that or a bad idea. And it's been sort of wiffle waffling in my mind because I can see both sides. One side is like debates in America. Are they open to the public? Are they necessarily like made to work for the working class? Like, absolutely not. They're on yeah. television. Yeah. Thousands of dollars to buy a ticket. And with Joe Rogan, it's a podcast that you can download, but you're opening up the candidates to basically like a free for all slug for four hours, which is so. This won't be Michael Enright on the CBC. No, it's also incredibly incincere. I'm actually really pissed about the Joe Rogan thing because, I mean, it's self-aggrandizing for him. He's a media star. He's got to do it. But he yeah. doesn't want to have four hours of, of important debate for the for the American electorate. He just wants to get clicks and, and, and get famous. I, I, I have yeah. a real issue with how much populism has seized our politics. And it doesn't matter what ideological slant it's coming from. Obviously, I'm happy when I see, you know, stuff more akin to my political philosophy that, that becomes a popular movement. But populist movements lead to demagogues and and dictators like there is no no historical precedent where a populist movement hasn't eventually been hijacked by a small smaller group of people or an individual to some very bad ends you know mobs yeah. are mobs unfortunately sure Jen. you know but like the most powerful leader of the free world's main mode of presidential communication is twitter so you know, like, like, you want to see what's going on in the U.S.? Like, did you ever think you would check your check your Twitter feed? Like, no, you wouldn't. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe this is like the 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 main the main how things are going to go. Like, this is the way things are turning. My you know, my husband likes to say that Americans worship at the altar of wealth and celebrity. So you know, if maybe they you know they could have a podcast or they put it on after 16 and pregnant on mtv and you know <laughs> like their ratings will go through the roof right yeah. some sort of reality now, tv nonsense now yeah. speaking of twitter i have uh, this is actually on email i have a friend who lives in portland he and his partner they are both canadians and he is a, a very avid uh, cyclist. He has a very good bike, and he goes on long rides 
whenever he can. There's certainly a few times a week. He was quite distressed. Of course, it's very smoky now, so he can't do the rides. But more than that, and on one of his cycling routes, there were armed militia stopping traffic, questioning people with a police car beside them. These are uh, white males in you know army fatigues and hunting clothes with um, semi-automatic weapons. Just asking people, where are you going? Where are you driving to? Because the rumor is that Antifa is setting fire to all the forests. Now, when I heard that and knowing the source, I find that really troubling. I mean, that's not an election issue, but that's almost uh, exhibit A in the breakdown of society. It's the tone that's being set, right? Like that's. And who's going to be the guy? You're out riding your bike, minding your own business, and these people are asking you, where are you going? Who's going to be the first person to say, yeah, that's none of your business? Like, you just want to answer the question, get on and go on about your way. Like, who are going to – pushing back is hard. Pushing back is hard. Aggie? Well, I think it it just illustrates how – like, honestly, for me, I'm semi-surprised and not. For me, it's a – absolute failure of centrist politics that have been happening in the United States, like on and off for, let's say, like the last two decades, like explicitly this neoliberalism. And it's that they never believed that it was possible for citizens to pick up arms and buddy up with the police and decide that they're going to take back America. And it was always possible. And it was always something that it, that was there. And all you needed was obviously one psychopath or narcissist or whatever he is in office to make it happen. And it shows how weak that system is and how built on nothing it is that there was always, cause this didn't happen overnight. This has been something, this has been a dream probably for some individuals since the Reagan era for this <laughs> to be able to happen. And whoop did you look, it's finally happened. I like, I find it sad to be honest and frightening yeah. of course. Mm-hmm. But I'm not surprised that it is. And I because at the same time, Donald Trump in, I think, was it Portland or was it? I'm, I'm not sure. But he did call in the military against BLM activists. So that's like that's um what waging war on your citizens already. So that that's an act of civil war already that's happened that no, no sure, sure. media wants to talk about. So it's not surprising now that citizens are taking up arms and, you know, deciding like being tough on crime and crime is going to be what they decided to be. It's been a reality in America ever since its founding. Yeah. uh, There was the the, the standoff by the what that family down in Oregon, was it, you know, the the Bundys, right? That that uh, and the the, the white supremacist in Idaho back in the 80s, you know, and on and on and on. There's it's always been there. And and, I. I think it's been I don't know if we can pin the blame on a particular slice of the political spectrum. I think it's more just this. These are some of the structural flaws in American democracy. And there's more that we won't have time to go into in this show. Um, yeah. What is different right now? What makes this even more dangerous is it's not just we have a president who legitimizes it. The most the scariest thing that's happened in the last year is he has now got full autocratic control of the U.S. justice system in, in, because of William Barr. So those militia yes. know that they have absolutely no fear. There is no federal agency that's going to do anything about it. As a matter of fact, they're being endorsed by it. And those BML activists who try to push back are going to get charged. I mean, Bill Barr was musing the other day that he, he wanted to arrest the mayor of Portland and and charge protesters with sedition. Uh, this stuff is very, very real. 
And so the, the, the forces that have been living under a rock, Trump legitimized them and mainstreamed them. Bill Barr is making them legal now. Before we sign off here, and we are winding down, and this, what I'm going to ask, we will explore in greater detail, but I would love to get your take on the following. What happens on November 3rd and November 4th and the rest of the month of November if the Democrats manage to win the Electoral College? In other words, they not only win the popular vote, they win the Electoral College, so they win the election. What will happen if Trump refuses to step down? <laughs> he's not going to. It's not that he's simply going to tweet out, "I won't, I won't step down." The process that <laughs> he's, no, but oh, the, he but will tweet. Very, <laughs> he will, but there is a really strong threat that we all have to get ready for: is that state results are certified by the states themselves. So it only takes right. a couple attorneys general to waffle and say, "I'm not so sure." It only takes a few statements and edicts from Bill Barr to say there's been some issues with the vote. All they actually need to do is fuzz things up. And gosh knows the Republicans have done this before. Make things fuzzy and uncertain long enough until they get to the day day of inauguration. Because you know what happens on the day of inauguration if they haven't settled a president? It's decided by Congress. It's decided by a vote with the uh, state's delegation. Every state in Congress. Sorry, the yeah. House of Representatives gets a vote. Guess which party controls the majority of state delegations? Clear path to drag the puck for two months with the full weight of the Justice Department behind him and a lot of very friendly, corrupt attorneys generals, state attorney right. generals in the United States to get to inauguration. If he does, he gets voted in by Congress and he's the president again. That's the thing that should scare everybody because it's not going to be hard to do. So Jenny and Tim and Aggie, thanks so much for joining me on this panel discussion. Uh, You've been listening to Pints in Politics. We're a weekly discussion program about all things political. We post on Twitter at Bill Temp and on our Facebook page, Pints in Politics. Uh, So until next week, this is Bill Templeman.